Tonight, uh, I've been asked to speak about Buber's Hasidic tales. Buber was a famous figure, and his Hasidic tales are probably his most famous uh, contribution to Jewish life for most people, even though he probably would have said his translation of the Bible was equally important. But let me tell you a little bit first about Buber. For those of you who are not familiar with him, Buber was the greatest Jewish thinker in Jewish terms in the 20th century. He came from a very distinguished family. His grandfather, Solomon Buber, was an editor of Midrashic texts, rabbinic commentaries. And if you go into a classical library and you look for Midrashic texts, you'll find many of them edited by Buber are still the standard. For reasons that are not altogether clear, Buber's mother left his father when Buber was a young boy, and Buber was raised on the estate of his grandfather in Galicia. He talks lovingly about his grandmother who sort of raised him. He talks lovingly about his grandfather who was his mentor, his teacher, his guide, his model. And he grew up in this privileged and very Jewish environment. As a youngster, he tells us in his autobiographical fragment that his grandfather used to take him to tzaddikim in the area. Tzaddikim are the leaders of the Hasidic community, also called the Rebbe, the tzaddik, the righteous one, the holy one. And there he began to perceive that there was something special about Hasidism that spoke to his soul and spoke to his intellect. He was born in 1878, and in the 18, late 1890s, he went from Galicia to Germany and started to study in a variety of German universities. As was common at that time, you didn't just go to one university. You went one year to, say, Tübingen, if there was a famous professor you wanted to hear, and the next year you went to Marburg, and the next year you went to Berlin. And the course of a number of years, you studied the various subjects, and then you took exams. Buber studied philosophy and theology and art history. He was very interested in art. Also, those of you who know a little Jewish history know that this was exactly the time when the most influential and important movement in modern Jewish life was coming into being, Zionism. And Buber was very early attracted to Zionism. And for a while, as a young man in his 20s, he was the editor, actually, of the Zionist Journal. But he fell out with Herzl, the great figure of Zionism, and he became more of a cultural Zionist in the model of a man named Achad Ha'am. I don't know if you all know something of the history of Zionism, but you know there were two main streams. The political Zionists who followed Herzl, who made their primary emphasis just politics, Anachat Ha'am, Ginsburg, as his name was in truth, who stressed that Zionism wasn't so much a political movement as a cultural movement, that Mitzion Teitzei Torah, from Jerusalem, would go a Jewish fourth, a Jewish renaissance. And Buber, being an intellectual of a certain kind, a philosophically reflective, sensitive individual, was very drawn to that idea of Zionism as a cultural renaissance. In addition, Buber started to think about projects as a young, affluent intellectual. And early on, he decided that he would start writing various books which weren't Jewish in character. He collected tales of Taoist uh, tradition, the Chinese 
tradition. He published some Finnish uh, folk tales. And then through the study of folk literature, which was very common at that time, he was drawn to Hasidic tales. Now, parenthetically, it's of interest to know that he was drawn to tales, as other people were drawn to the tales at this time, because of the romantic movement. You all think of romanticism, perhaps, in terms of music and art. But romanticism was really an intellectual movement that emphasized that the fundamental character of a group, of an individual, of a people, is in their emotional life, not their intellectual life. And that if you want to really understand the group, don't look at its philosophy. Don't look, for example, at Germany. Don't look at Kant or Hegel. Look at the folk tales of the Brothers Grimm. Now, any of you who have read the Grimm folk tales know how grim they are. And that's why all the Germans who grew up with them are all a little mishuga. But the fact is that it was this literature, these folk tales, that were the peasant stories. That's the real Germany not the intellectuals in the university who are acculturated and who are already, uh, in a way, less German. And so Buber started to study Jewish folk tales, trying to find the real Jew, as compared to the increasingly secular, increasingly alienated, increasingly integrated Jew, he wanted to find the real Jew, and he thought that by studying Hasidic tales, he would have a way of doing that. In 1906, he published his first uh, collection of Hasidic tales, <coughs> which were on Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlav, and two years, Nachman of Bratzlav was the great-grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the movement, a famous figure in his own right, and then uh, two years later, he published a book in German on the tales of the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the movement. He continued to do these kinds of things in the 1920s, early 20s. He published a book on the Magad, the successor to the Baal Shem Tov. And uh, he then went on in the 1930s to publish continual essays on Hasidism and do further translations. In the 1940s, in Hebrew, he published his later version of the tales of the Hasidim, and it's those tales that were translated into English, which many of you may have read. Now, what was it about Hasidism that he found attractive? What he thought he found, and what he emphasized that he found, was that actually the philosophical underpinnings, the theological teachings of the Hasidic community were really the same teachings that he was discovering in his own independent philosophical dialogue, in his own philosophical work. You, many of you will know that in 1923, Buber published a famous book called Ish and Du, I and Thou, which made him a world-famous figure. And in this book, he tried to give a basic analysis of the way human beings act in the world. It's a complicated book though it looks very simple. If you go to Venice Beach, you'll see a lot of foolish people trying to read it and not understanding it. The book is really very sophisticated, very difficult. But the essence of the book is that we can meet God and meet each other by having the appropriate attitude, by going out to them in openness, by seeking the other person, including God, <clears throat> without preconditions, without requirements, without obligations. 
And as a result of the encounter, especially with God, we don't get back, and here you see Buber's uh, reputation as what was called an existentialist. You don't get back finished formulae. He says in the third part of I and Now, there's nothing that can be held above men's head that says, do this, do that. Obviously, he has the image of the Ten Commandments in mind. God doesn't give us do's and don'ts. God reveals himself, reveals his presence, reveals his personality, but he doesn't give us laws. Human beings make up laws. He doesn't give us objective rules. Human beings make up objective rules. He doesn't give us norms of morality. Human beings make up those rules, and they do that in response. They try to hold on to the original encounter into the truth of the meeting with God, and they make objective phenomena out of what are subjective phenomena. They put into words what can't be put into words. They make law what isn't law. They make content what isn't content. And so Buber thought this idea of what real religion is, that real religion is about a kind of personal encounter with the other, a personal meeting with God, which he called dialogue, the I-thou encounter, which has no ground rules and can't be made objectified, formal, prescriptive, was also what was happening in Hasidism. Whether that's true or not, we'll see, but you should understand the reason he was a lifelong student of Hasidism as well as an independent philosopher was because he thought the two of these things, these two cultural creative forces were really one, that they expressed the same kind of deep truth. Now with that very brief introduction, and then we can talk in the question and answer if you need more an explanation of some of these things. I want to talk about the tales. <clears throat> Buber's Hasidic tales. Now, the tales are very famous. The great German author, Hermann Hesse, once recommended Buber for the Nobel Prize on the basis of the tales. And he said in his covering letter to the Nobel Committee, no author has enriched world literature in our time as Martin Buber through his tales of the Hasidim. And I would think that's not an uncommon view. There are many people who will share that view, who will tell you to read the tales if you want to understand Buber, to read the tales if you want to understand Hasidism. Now to study the tales, as we'll do tonight for a brief period, <clears throat> means to ask some very sophisticated questions. The first question is, what is the actual situation regarding Hasidic material? In other words, if I sent, I see there are young people in the audience, if I had them in a class and I wanted them to learn about Hasidism, what would I send them to read? If I assume you live near a university, say the University of Irvine, California at Irvine, or you go up to UCLA, which has a really fine Judaica collection, <clears throat> and I had access to all the books that the Hasidim produced, what books would I want these young people to read in order to study Hasidism? How would I teach it to them? Buber says, well, you will teach them the tales. There are collections of written tales, and those tales are the essence. And they go from there. You read a tale, you interpret it, you try to make sense of it, you try to see what it can teach you, how it can move you, how it tells about the community, about the leaders. But there's an important 
methodological principle and a substantive principle here that I need to mention at the outset. Actually, Hasidic literature is very complex, much more complex than the description you get from me just a moment ago or from Buber. If I took all these young people with me to UCLA and I said, go study Hasidism, I would also point them to a whole library of books which are called by scholars the theoretical literature of Hasidism. Now, many of you probably have read Buber's Tales but have never read any theoretical literature of Hasidism. The theoretical literature of Hasidism is a mountain of material produced by the first figures of the movement and of great historic importance for understanding the movement. Buber, however, did not like this literature. And I'll come back to explain why he did not like this literature. But you need to know at the outset that there is much more to the whole issue than the tales will give you. The second thing you need to know is that when you find the tales in the original, you find material that is not always finished. If you read Buber's Tales, for example, in English, how many of you have read Buber's Tales? Oh, just a few of you. You know that they're very beautiful. He was a master stylist, a man of great aesthetic sensitivity. And when you finish the tales, you have a very warm feeling because they're beautiful in the way they're constructed. The original, however, from which Buber worked is not always so beautiful. It's a fragment. Usually tales start as oral traditions. The people who tell them are not aestheticians. They're not poets. They're not Buber. They tell primitive tales. Sometimes they end it. Sometimes they forget to begin the beginning. Sometimes they leave something out. Sometimes we have six versions of a tale, and Buber combines them and makes one tale. So the question, the second question is, if the first decision is what literature to use, and Buber chooses to use only one part of the Hasidic corpus, namely the theoretical literature, the second question is, what does Buber do with the literature he chooses to work with? Is he an innocent interpreter, if there is such a thing? Is he a naive recorder of stories? You know, today there's a movement among anthropologists that it's better for anthropologists to study a subject that they really don't know because then they can't color the information they're getting, right? So if you're going to study Indonesia and you don't know anything about Indonesia, when you take an interview, you'll just write down what the Indonesians tell you. Of course, that produces gobbledygook because you really don't understand what they're telling you. And that's why anthropology is in the mess it's in. But the fact is that this is a very sophisticated kind of editing that Buber does. And Buber knows it. To his credit, he's an honest man. And he says, I'm not a disinterested academic. I'm not writing books for academicians. I am really, and this is his own view of himself, I am the most authentic Hasid in 200 years. A Hasid is the name of a disciple of a Hasidic Rebbe. There's the Rebbe and the disciple. The disciple is called the Hasid. I am the most authentic Hasid, and who am I a Hasid of? I am a Hasid of the original founder of the movement, the Baal Shem Tov. So Buber saw his work really in very propagandistic ways, like the disciples 
who followed Jesus. And Jesus said, go out and spread the message. Buber felt that was his calling, to go out to the world and spread the message of Hasidism. In order to do that, he felt justified in taking the tales and editing those tales that he liked and leaving out tales that he didn't like, which we'll come back to, and ignoring the theoretical literature, which he considered too classical. By classical, I mean it was not really, in his view, in the spirit of Hasidism. It was more like a carryover of the older Kabbalah, the older mystical tradition. It was Gnostic. Gnostic means it had secret knowledge, secret ideas. It was too transcendental, too otherworldly, too metaphysical, whereas in his view the tales were this worldly, everyday, not Kabbalistic, not Gnostic, and so on. Now let's look at the meaning of this uh, kind of editing. Take his view of the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov is the founder of the movement. His name was Rabbi Israel ben Eliezer. He was orphaned as a young boy. He was born by tradition in 1700. As a youngster, he was not a great student, and he liked what Jews did not like. He liked nature, he liked animals, he liked all these sort of Goyesha things. He was given a simple job, because he wasn't very talented, as a teacher's helper. In Yiddish is called a behelfer, like a kindergarten teacher assistant, not a very sophisticated job. He then would take the children to school, and the stories are told about him on the way to school. He would sing to the birds, and he would sing to the children, and he would tell them tales, all kinds of stories. Later on, he left that job, and he went off to the Carpathian Mountains, where he married, and he was an innkeeper. He kept an inn. Though he was really not much of an innkeeper, his wife did most of the work, and he would go off to the mountains to meditate by himself and do mystical devotions. According to tradition, the Hasidic tradition, at the age of 36, heaven called him and said, it's now time for you to reveal yourself to the world. And he starts to travel as a Baal Shem Tov. What's a Baal Shem Tov mean? The name Baal Shem Tov is a description. It, Hebrew, Baal means master. Shem means name. Tov means good. A Baal Shem Tov, you might think, is someone who has a good reputation. You know, in Jewish life, we always say the crown of a good reputation. But here, the Baal Shem Tov is a technical term. It means the master, Baal Shem Tov, the master of the good name. The good name is the name of God, especially the Tetragrammaton, the four-letter name of God. It's someone who knows how to use the four-letter name of God for healing, for making amulets, for various kinds of magical purposes. And he was not the only Baal Shem Tov. We have others. It's something like in the, you all know the Old West, people were traveling wonder workers. Now, you shouldn't be too critical of this. You have to understand, in our time, if you're sick, you go to a hospital, and they have really the ability to help you. Before the 20th century, the worst thing you could do if you were sick was go to a doctor. For example, you might have a minor ailment, and the doctor would put the same spatula in your mouth that he just put in the mouth of somebody who had some deadly disease. 
So you came with a minor ailment and you went home with a deadly disease. Doctors were really charlatans. They didn't mean to be charlatans, but they didn't have any germ knowledge of germ theory. They didn't really understand all these issues of how diseases caused and how diseases helped. And so people were so desperate that they fell back on a simple idea that God produces health. He produces everything. So he produces health and he produces illness. So really, the person you want to consult when you're ill is not the doctor so much as the magician, the one who knows how to influence heaven, to be religiously rather than, we might say, biologistically uh, informed. And there, that tradition continues. Uh, Shabbos morning, I'm sure here in the synagogue, when you lay in the Torah, the rabbi says a prayer for the sick, right? For Rafua Shlema on the ill in the community. When people are very sick, we have a custom in Jewish life, we change their name to frustrate the angel of death, who has a warrant to come for Moshe, and we call him Isaac. So he looks for Moshe, we say, that's Isaac. So the angel of death goes away. The fact is, you see, there are these traditions, and they're emerging out of a deep existential need for healing, for health, for especially with gynecological problems, which are so dangerous. Birth of children was always a terribly dangerous time. First year of birth was terribly dangerous time. So the wonder worker was a crucially important figure in that sense. And if you look at the original tales told about the Baal Shem Tov, especially in a very important, the first important collection of tales, which is called the Shivche Habesht, published in 1815, which you can find in an English translation from Indiana University Press called In Praise of the Baal Shem Tov, you find tales that are very, very interesting. And I want to read to you some tales, for example, that indicate how the sources, the original sources, saw the Baal Shem Tov for a moment, before I talk about Buber. For example, there's a tale in the Shivcha Habesh that goes as follows. The Besht said to Rabbi Yechiel Michal, return home in peace. You will find your wife in difficult labor, surrounded by many women. Send them out of your home. Whisper in her ear what I have taught you. Obviously, some sort of magical formula, some amulet. And you will have a baby boy, Mazel Tov. And so it was. Rabbi Yechiel arrived home two hours before nightfall. He did as the Baal Shem Tov had ordered him, and she gave birth to a baby boy. This boy was Rabbi Yosef of Yampol. Now that means that in the original tale, the Baal Shem Tov is someone who knows how to make healings. Someone who knows secrets that will help produce a normal birth. Again, I read you some tales from the Baal Shem Tov about the issue of messianism. Messianism. You know there's a deep tradition in Jewish life of messianism. And in the early Hasidic community, there was a very powerful messianic impulse. I don't have the time to explain why, except that you should know that beginning in the 16th century, 
leading up to Hasidism, there are about three centuries of very intense messianic speculation and movements in Judaism. And the Baal Shem Tov and Hasidism come at the end of those three centuries. And here's the story that the Baal Shem Tov tells his brother-in-law, Gershon of Kutav, and it's published in the first Hasidic book, which is a theoretical book published in 1780 by his, his uh, secretary, Rav Yaakov Yosef of Polnoy. And this is the story that he tells his brother-in-law in the letter that's published. On the first day of Rosh Hashanah, I had a lifting of the soul, Aliyah Neshama. And I went up to the palace of the Messiah. And I asked the Messiah, Master, when wilt thou appear on earth? And the Messiah answered, This shall be a sign unto you. When thy wisdom shall become known throughout the world, and the fountains of thy wisdom shall be poured forth, imparting to others what I have taught you to apprehend, when all other men shall have the power to perform contemplative unifications, that means mystical actions, and a sense of the soul, the souls will be able to go to heaven, like you, then shall the shells of impurity disappear in the time of great favor and salvation shall arrive. And that was what happened in early Hasidism. It was deeply messianic. And if you're interested in the history of modern Israel, you'll know that one of the first great aliyot to the land of Israel was among several hundred Hasidim at the beginning of the 20th, uh, 19th century. They went to the land of Israel because Jewish messianism and redemption is always associated with the resettlement of the land of Israel. Then we learn a third thing about the Baal Shem Tov. He was a magician. He knew how to use the name of God for various purposes. And I read you a tale. Israel ben Eliezer of Mezbish called the Baal Shem Tov was, I'm sorry, in the case of Baal Shem Tov, he used his magical purposes to manifest magic and to bring about results in the world to come. That's what we read. Now here you have three things that we learn about the Baal Shem Tov. He was a magician, he was a healer, he was a messianic personality in some sense, something to do with his teaching and his life was messianic. And thirdly, he knew how to use the name of God for magical purposes. Now let's look at Buber's version of things. I think you have some stories in your uh, handout, right? The Besht and the Frog. Someone want to read that for us? Oh, maybe I'd better do it. I have the microphone. There are people who say that once the rabbi entered into deep meditation, he was absorbed in his thoughts for three days and three nights, and he was not aware that he was walking. Then he realized that he was in a vast desert and thought that his wandering was probably not without meaning. While engrossed in his thoughts, there appeared before him a frog that was so large he could not tell what kind of creature it was. He asked the frog, who are you? And the frog replied that he was a scholar who had been reincarnated as a frog. The best said, you are indeed a scholar, and with this pronouncement, he greatly elevated his soul. The frog told him that it had been 500 years since he had been transformed into a frog, and although the rabbi Ari, meaning Isaac Luria in the 16th century, God bless his memory, had redeemed all souls, 
Because of the severity of his crimes, he had been expelled to a place without people, so no one could redeem him. The best asked him, what was your crime? He said that once he neglected to wash his hands properly, and Satan accused him before God of his transgression. I won't read the rest. Take time. Now, this tale is a tale. You all see it's a tale. It's not a theory. But Buber did not include this tale in his collection. Now, the question is, why didn't he include this tale in his collection? Well, first of all, you notice that it has deeply magical and traditional elements. So, for example, we read here about a frog who is a man and who is involved with reincarnation. Those of you who are not familiar with mysticism should know that in Jewish mystical tradition, the belief is that we all reincarnate that depending on our life, we come back in the next life in order to improve and improve and improve until such time as we become perfect beings and then we don't reincarnate. Buber didn't like reincarnation. He didn't like those kinds of Kabbalistic ideas. Secondly, he didn't like the fact that there was a cause of this man being a frog. What was the crime? He had once neglected to wash his hands properly, and Satan accused him of this transgression. What is he talking about? You all know that before you eat, you have to wash and you have to make a blessing. If you don't, that's considered to be a violation of the law. Buber, again, didn't like this idea of the traditional law. I told you a moment ago that law is a human invention, that the halakha is a human invention, that mitzvot are a human invention, and so he left this out. Now, if I had time, I would read with you the other two tales that I prepared for you, so you would see how Buber edits out, that is say, when he produces a collection of Hasidic material, first he decides to leave out the theoretical, only to include the literary, the tales. Then when he has the tales, he chooses among the tales that he wants to include, and he leaves out the tales that don't fit his picture. Then when he does... The final version, he still does further editing, as we'll see. If you turn the page, you'll see a story. And here's how it goes. Once Rabbi Adam's son asked the boy to conjure up the Prince of Torah with the aid of the directions given in the writings so that they might ask him to solve certain difficult teachings. For a long time, Israel refused to undertake so great a venture, but in the end, he let himself be persuaded. It's a very nice tale, but it has no magic in it, right? There's nothing magical, there's nothing very Jewish, there's nothing very traditional, just that the boy was asked to do something with the world above. The only traditional element is to conjure up the Prince of Torah. But here's what the original says. When they went to their house of solitude, they studied the Gemara, the commentary of Rashi, and the Tosfot, the writings of the legal codifiers, and all the holy scriptures. So first of all, what detail do you see in the second version that you don't see in the first version? The first fact of the second version is what? What did they do? They went to the house of solitude. Now that's not going to mean a lot to you, but you should know that in Jewish mystical, traditional mystical tradition, a mystic sets aside a special place, a special room or a special house in which to meditate. Why? Because that's a place of special holiness. In your ordinary house, you do all kinds of things that aren't sacred. 
that pollute you, that corrupt you, that involve you in the world. And the first person to set aside a space outside the camp to do mystical and magical things was who? Moses. Remember, Moses goes to his own place when he wants to commune with God to get away from the community. But this Buber doesn't like because it smacks of traditional mysticism, Kabbalah, the whole tradition. Secondly, in the original tale, they asked the boy to conjure the prince. In the second, when they went to the house of study, what did they study? They studied the Gemara, Talmud, traditional rabbinic law. They studied the commentary of Rashi, traditional rabbinic exegesis on scripture. The Tosfot are the grandchildren of Rashi who are essentially legal commentators. Then they went to the legal codifiers. By the legal codifiers, he means Maimonides probably and Joseph Caro, the author of the Shelchan Aruch. Buber doesn't like legal codification. He doesn't think that it's important that there be exact precision in the performance of the commandments and how you do it and when you do it and so on. Then we read the second sentence. In the above-mentioned manuscripts, there was both divine Kabbalah and practical Kabbalah. What does it mean, divine Kabbalah? Divine Kabbalah means theories. Theories about the nature of heaven and the way you and I as human beings influence heaven. This is called theurgical action, that when we perform a commandment, when we perform an action appropriately, we're able to unify the world above, which in its present condition is not unified. And the deep mystical issue is for human beings through their keeping of the commandments to unify the world above. The second thing they studied is practical Kabbalah, Kabbalah Pratit, which means essentially this worldly magic. People who are sick, you heal them. People who are infertile, you help them have children. People who are poor, you give them uh, some kind of help financially. Practical Kabbalah. But that again is magic. Once Rabbi Adam's son asked the Baal Shem Tov to bring down the prince of the Torah to explain something to them, and the Baal Shem Tov refused and said, if we err, God forbid, in our kavanah, it can be dangerous. We lack the ashes of a red heifer. All of that's missing. What does that mean? If we err, the Baal Shem Tov told him, God forbid in our kavanah, it can be dangerous. What's kavanah? Intention, it generally means intention. In the mystical sources, it means a special kind of mystical intention. Not just being committed, but it means having in mind the unifications in the world above that you're going to achieve by your action. And if we err, what will happen? We'll be in great danger. Why? Because we lack the ashes of the red heifer. What is the red heifer? It's the famous and almost unintelligible ritual, the Rambam in the Moreh, in the Guide for the Perplexed said, there's one commandment I can't explain. This is the commandment of the Pora Aduma, of the red heifer, that you take a red heifer and you cremate it, you uh, offer it as a sacrifice, you take its ashes, you mix it with water, and then you achieve purification through the rite of the red heifer. Today in Israel, there are people who are trying to grow red heifers. And also in America, Christian fundamentalists have a ranch, I think in Texas, trying to grow red heifers because they want to reinstitute the temple tradition and so on. Buber doesn't like any of that. So all of that goes out of his version. Now let's look at the second piece. So they want to find the secrets. So in Buber's version, they fasted from Shabbat to Shabbat. 
immerse themselves in the bath of purification, that means the mikveh, and at the close of the Sabbath, fulfill the rites prescribed. But probably because Adam's son did not fix his soul utterly on the teaching of themselves, an error crept in. Instead of the prince of the Torah, the prince of fire appeared and wanted to burn up the entire town. It was only by great effort that it was saved. So they had a bad outcome. But now looks at the original, the detail. But Rabbi Adam's son urged him, means the Baal Shem Tov, every day and he could not refuse him. They fasted hafsakah from one Sabbath to the other. Now you see in the Buberian version it said they fasted from Sabbath to Sabbath. In the original it says they fasted hafsakah. Now that may seem a small matter to you, but what it means is this. In the original they're pointing to the fact that there are regimens, there are programs, there are plans of how one should fast. It's not spontaneous. In Jewish tradition, we have various fasting traditions. One is to fast all the days of the week when we don't read the Torah. That means to fast not on Monday and not on Thursday and not on Saturday, but the other four days. Or to fast hafsakah, which means to fast from one Saturday to the other, only drinking minimal amounts of water. Those are regimens. That is to say there's a doctrine, there's a teaching, there's a gnosis, there's a Kabbalistic way, but Buber doesn't like that, so that's gone. Secondly, they immersed themselves in the ritual bath, and at the end of the Holy Shabbat, they concentrated on some particular kavanot, particular kavanot. They did the mystical, special kind of mystical intention. Immediately, the best shouted, oh, we made a mistake. The prince of fire will descend and burn the whole town. Now, since you are regarded by everyone as a pious man, go immediately to your father-in-law and to the others and tell them to save the town. And so it happened. Then all the people thought of Adam's son as highly and uh, thought of him very highly and considered him a holy man and a miracle worker. The, the highest praise, they made him a miracle worker. A very thing that Buber does not like. Now, you see, I give you this not to denigrate Buber's work, but to tell you that the study of these materials is extremely sophisticated and complex. And that you have to understand that there was a whole very profound editorial process that Buber undertook in producing his tales. And therefore, when you enter into a conversation with the tales, when you read the tales, you have to ask yourself, am I learning about Buber, who's very profound, or am I learning about Hasidism? Or am I learning about something in between? Look at the next tale, just to show you again how it works. The non-Buber version, the original version says, the best, the best fasted hafsakah for long periods. When he wanted to eat, he dug a small pit and put flour in water, which was baked in the heat. This was his only food after fasting. All these days he was in solitude. In Buber's version, when Israel was hungry, he put water and flour into a pit, kneaded it, and baked it in the sun. Left out the whole idea that the whole object of the tale is about the Baal Shem Tov doing magical meditative, fasting kinds of things. It's a totally different story. And so you have in these tales a dramatic editorial process. Now what is left out? What comes out? In the original tales, first of all, you have, as you already saw, magic. 
In the original tales, you have messianism. In the original tales, you have the use of God's name for special purposes. In the original tales, you have the very Jewish center of the tales. The very Jewish center of the tales is the performance of the commandments. I need to stress that in particular here for one reason. Why did Hasidism come into being, ladies and gentlemen? I know you have Chabad here in uh, Orange County. Some of you may be supporters of Chabad, may go to Chabad on Shabbat or on other occasions. Why did Hasidism come into being when it came into being? What was the center of its activity, of its doctrine? To answer that question, you have to know, as I mentioned earlier, that there were three centuries of messianic enthusiasm in the Jewish community, intense, intense messianic enthusiasm. In the 17th century, this messianic enthusiasm broke its bounds, you might say, became completely corrupt. And it produced a pseudo-messiah named Shabtai Tzvi. How many of you know the name Shabtai Tzvi? So that's most of you know. Shabtai Tzvi is one of the great tragedies in Jewish history. What Shabtai Tzvi did was to take the messianic teachings of Isaac Luria from the 16th century, to take the messianic hope of the Jewish people of millennia, to wed it together and to corrupt both of them to corrupt both Jewish mysticism and Jewish messianism by making the claim that he was the Messiah, and as the Messiah, he ended all Jewish traditional practice. He said, like Jesus had said two millennia earlier, the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath, not the Sabbath over the Son of Man. That was Jesus' polemic with the Pharisees. Shabtai Tzvi said, I am the Messiah, and it's the end of the old era of the law. So, for example, by tradition, the Messiah is born on Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of the month of Av. What do we do? Why do we remember the ninth day of Av? Because that's the saddest day in the Jewish calendar. It's the day when the first and second temples, by tradition, were destroyed. So what do we do on that day? We fast for 25 hours, Yom Kippur. We don't engage in sexual activity. We don't wear leather shoes. We don't put on perfume. We don't bathe. But because by tradition it's the birthday of the Messiah, meaning that God already produces the antidote to the exile at the moment of destruction, God already is preparing for the redemption, the Sabtai Tzvi and his movement said, I am the Messiah, I'm born on Tisha B'Av. Now that I'm here, you don't have to keep Tisha B'Av anymore. So the Sabbateans had revelry on Tisha B'Av. They had joyous festivals on Tisha B'Av. As proof that the law was broken, they especially did things that were sexually inappropriate. And in general, the Sabbateans had a special ritual. They called it the prayer that goes like this. Blessed art thou, O Lord, King of the universe, who permits the forbidden. Can you imagine? Blessed art thou, O Lord, King of the universe, who permits the forbidden. Everything that heretofore had been forbidden is now permissible. I always say to my own students, they act like Sabbateans, but they're not Sabbateans because they don't make the bracha. 
right? The bracha is what makes you a Sabbatean. You see it as an act of divine instruction that now you have to have sexual orgies. Now you have to have cheeseburgers. Now you have to have joyous festivals on the Day of Atonement and on Tisha B'Av. That phenomenon of Sabbatean perversion was the deepest destructive moment, perhaps, in the whole history of the exile from the time of 70 to the modern period. The Jewish people invested enormous emotional and spiritual hope in Shabtai Tzvi, and it all came a cropper. It all turned out to be a lie. At the end of the 17th century, the question was, could Jewish life survive as we know it? Then the Sabbateans took a second turn I don't have time to go into. A man came forward named Jacob Frank, who said he was the reincarnation of Shabtai Tzvi. And I should tell you also, Shabtai Tzvi converted to Islam and lived for the last 10 years on a pension from the Caliph. And then when he died, the younger brother of his last wife converted 384 people to Islam. And out of that group of converts, there arose a man named Jacob Frank. And he claimed that he was the reincarnation of Shabtai Tzvi, and he was going to convert to Catholicism to complete the cycle of messianic action. And he was even more degenerate than Shabtai Tzvi. He had orgies with his daughter, with his sister. And it was in this context that Hasidism came into being. What did Hasidism preach? Hasidism preached the return of the rule of law, the return of the rule of the commandment, the return of the rule of Torah. And it took from the messianic elements that preceded it, the idea of a charismatic leader, the Rebbe, the Tzaddik is the charismatic leader, but within the boundaries of Torah, within the boundaries of halakha, within the boundaries of the law. That's what Hasidism is, a reaffirmation of the law with a charismatic leader, not an antinomian leader, someone who breaks the law, who's orgiastic, corrupt, perverse. But in Buber's tales, all of that is missing because the very center of Hasidism, which is the legalistic, the nomistic, has been expurgated, drawn out. Now what that means is that you have to be very careful in reading all of this material. Buber is a great genius, without doubt, a very great genius. And his tales are very beautiful. But you have to ask yourself when you read him, am I getting an authentic Hasidic message, authentic Jewish message even, or am I getting an authentic Buber message? Now, Buber's truth may be true. That's another question. But whether it truly represents the material on which he works, and which he claims to be only the vehicle for disseminating to the world, that he's only a chassid, making the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov known to everyone, is a deep and profound question. That Buber was a master student of this material in many ways is certainly true. That he understood that the core of the Hasidic teaching is the disciple-master relationship. That for most of the disciples, they're not theoreticians, they're not intellectuals, the tales are more popular than the theoretical literature. All of that's true. But whether the deep spirituality of Hasidism, which is a spirituality of Kabbalah, of messianic hope, and of halachic 
behavior, traditional religious behavior, is properly conveyed in the Hasidic tales is another story. Let me stop there and say good evening.